Hi, this is Ashi Bachu, founder and CEO of MC Squared Health. I'm joined here today with Dr. Andrew Franco, who's an emergency medicine physician at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. Andrew, so great to have you. Thanks, Ashi. Appreciate you having me. Andrew, why don't we just uh, start with broad strokes? Uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself as well as your role with uh, St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. Absolutely. So I'm a physician in the emergency department at a typically busy level one urban trauma center in Hartford, Connecticut. I'd like to fully disclose that my views are my own and do not necessarily reflect those of my employer. I'm not an epidemiologist or trained in public health, and I have no financial disclosures. But with that said, a typical day in the emergency department. So patient can present with any number of complaints from ankle injury to a chest pain, from fevers to headaches, any sort of complaint. And my job is to work the patient up for emergency conditions. For instance, if a patient presents with chest pain, I will work them up for a heart attack, give medicine to treat them for their symptoms, and then do a bit of risk stratification to determine if they are able to take care of their condition at home with primary care follow-up, or if they need to be admitted to the hospital for further management. So in a 10-hour workday, I'll typically see 20 to 30 patients with any number of complaints. Great. Thanks for the background. I mean, you've done a great job of kind of highlighting how emergency departments work at a high level, how physicians see patients who are coming in the door. Can you walk us through the term triage? What does that mean? And how has COVID-19 changed the triage process in emergency departments? Definitely. Triage plays into that risk stratification that I mentioned before. If a patient presents with chest pain and like unstable vital signs, for instance, high or low blood pressure, then they'll be triaged at a higher level than a person who maybe injured their foot but is otherwise stable. So it sort of assigns priority to the need to evaluate a patient sooner. Emergency department in the age of coronavirus is very different from the emergency department pre-COVID. The months of February to March into April, it was pretty fascinating seeing COVID start out as just in the news as a theoretical disaster, and then we started seeing it impact New York City, and then it sort of made its way up from New York up to Hartford to be the very real health crisis that it is now. It's affected our hospital pretty drastically. The majority of the patients that I see now on a day-to-day -day basis, majority are COVID. That said, the total number of patients that I've seen has decreased, but the total acuity or like the sickness of the patients has increased. So I feel like I'm still working pretty hard, even though I'm seeing fewer patients. Andrew, could you walk us a little bit through what happens uh, when a patient is diagnosed with COVID-19 in the ED? Are they figuring this out in an ambulance on the way to the ED? Are they walking in and you can tell right out of the bat? How exactly does that um, process work? When a patient comes to the emergency department, either by an ambulance or through walk-in, uh, and they have any sort of upper respiratory infection symptoms, such as cough, fever, shortness of breath, even body aches, every single one is presumed to have COVID-19. Unfortunately, this virus presents in a million different ways and doesn't follow the typical URI symptoms. There was an article 
in JAMA in April that showed only 30% of patients who had COVID-19 in New York City had fever, and also about 30% had shortness of breath, which is much lower than what you would expect. So when someone comes into the emergency department with even one of the URI symptoms, they are placed in isolation room as a precaution, so solitary room with the door closed. The nurse and the physician evaluate the patient in full personal protective equipment, or PPE, which includes gown, an N95 mask, gloves. If it's indicated, then the patient will be tested with a nose swab for the virus. Our tests kind of take a few days to result, but some other tests can take a few hours. But regardless, I've seen some patients who definitely have coronavirus just by their history. Well, I interacted with somebody who had coronavirus five days ago, and now I have a cough and they end up having negative test results. So I'll often recommend continued isolation regardless of the test results. Once the patient is evaluated in the emergency department, we need to make the decision if the patient is sick enough to be hospitalized. So that decision is based on several factors. Uh, the first one is oxygen saturation. If the patient has severe COVID-19, almost universally severe COVID-19, they've got hypoxia or low oxygen saturation. Uh, and the cause of that isn't really well understood. So it could be that it's a viral pneumonia causing fluid buildup in the lungs or something called ARDS, or it could also be that there's uh, hypoxia from lots of tiny little blood clots forming as an exaggerated immune response to the virus. We just don't really know, and we're sort of treating it as both right now, because we just don't really know. If the patient has such severe hypoxia and is really struggling to breathe, then often I have to intubate the patient, uh, which is placing a breathing tube and connecting them to a ventilator as like a lung machine. And, you know, we try to avoid that whenever we can by providing some supplemental oxygen, either through the nose or with a face mask. But because it really seems that patients who get placed on the ventilator ultimately don't do very well. Wow. I mean, you touched on something right in the beginning that you said that it really blew my mind. Such a low percentage of patients having a temperature that registers as them being potentially infected with coronavirus. And I recall from a New York Times interview that I'd heard that one broad mechanism that was used is whenever somebody is going inside or outside of a building that they were measuring temperature. And so to hear that, that mechanism of, of checking if you know somebody is potentially infected with coronavirus by seeing if their body temperature has gotten warmer is not really as effective. Wow, that really is you know surprising. Surprised me as well. I agree. We're doing the same thing at our hospital where they're doing the forehead thermometer temperature, but in Connecticut at least the weather just finally changed. But you know, last month we were walking from the cold parking garage into the hospital and they were checking our temperature and we were, I was often like 95 degrees on my forehead. I'm like, oh, you're <laughs> casually hypothermic. I'm going into work. <laughs> Very real challenges with, with uh, measuring temperatures. I mean, similarly, like uh, as kind of a patient, maybe putting their hand on their forehead and seeing how warm they are or cold in this case, is it easy for patients to know that they have COVID-19, you know, we had kind of spoken briefly before about this role of hyperhypoxia. You know, is, is that 
at all related to how somebody could maybe know if they have the virus. Yeah, absolutely. So patients who have any sort of upper respiratory infections with infection symptoms with the current pandemic going on, you should have kind of a strong suspicion that you might have COVID-19. So, you know, cough, fever, body aches, chills, shortness of breath, all of those are, are pretty concerning for possible infection. But you can't know for sure unless you get tested for it. The hypoxia is definitely something to be aware of. But really, unless you have an oxygen saturation monitor at home, you can't really tell unless you're up and walking around and you notice that you're short of breath when exerting yourself. You know, even if you are having shortness of breath with exertion and you're an otherwise healthy person and you notice that that's very atypical, I would always just recommend going into the hospital to get checked out. But if you have a pulse oximeter at home, you're one of the rare few, or if you happen to have a Samsung phone, because apparently Samsung phones were way, (laughs) way omniscient with this pandemic, you can check your oxygen saturation and anything above 90% is, is fine. You know, normal is 95 and above, but when you're exerting yourself, you can expect like a 92%. And, you know, in terms of this this question of disease predictability or patients to know within themselves that they have coronavirus, do you find that patients tend to, to walk in and have a pretty strong suspicion that they do have coronavirus or are they a bit more reluctant or dependent on you to kind of confirm via tests as a physician? Disease predictability is tough. The apparent risk factors for worse disease outcomes are people who are overweight or obese, people who have diabetes, people who have lung disease like COPD. That said, some otherwise healthy patients that I have seen in the emergency department have had to be placed on ventilators and, you know, been hospitalized for a week due to this infection. And then also on the flip side, some patients that I've admitted to the hospital who were overweight and with diabetes, who I thought would really do poorly, have done miraculously and have walked out of the hospital. So it's a very, very surprising because it's very difficult to predict how this infection goes. Earlier in the interview, you talked a little bit about the clinical workflow in terms of the acuity for all of the patients that you're seeing has gone up. Can you talk a little bit more about that experience, uh, how much clinical work has COVID-19 generated? and, And also if there's been any know, dense in terms of overall volume or acuity based on a lot of the shelter-in-place protocols that have been put into effect in, in a lot of uh, states across country. Definitely. The clinical work, I feel like for me, has pretty much stayed the same because, as I mentioned before, the total number of patients has decreased, but the acuity of the patients has increased. So I feel like I'm spending more time with sicker patients. That said, the entire hospital has been affected by COVID-19 and the medical ICU is completely overrun with these very sick patients. And it's gotten to the point where it's overflowed into from the medical ICU to the surgical intensive care unit because all of our elective surgeries are canceled. That is now entirely filled into a coronavirus intensive care unit. And the PACU, so the place where the patients go after surgeries typically, has also become a intensive care unit for really sick COVID-19 patients. So it really has taken over the hospital. So for me, in the emergency department, I feel like I've 
sort of been sheltered because I haven't been totally overrun, but the hospital has definitely been affected. Because of all of these elective surgeries being canceled, the hospital is now seeing decreased revenue. And so they've had to furlough certain essential staff like radiology techs. Several of the staff has been furloughed and they've had to cut staffing, which definitely affects the entire hospital. The patients that I'm seeing in the emergency department who have to get a CT scan, they're having to wait longer in the emergency department because there are fewer radiology techs to take them to the CT scan and the rooms are taking longer to clean in between. So your second part of the question was shelter in place affecting volume. Definitely seeing some incredibly good news there. As of early May, we are definitely seeing improvement in the number of patients that we're seeing in Connecticut. So we, we seem to be sort of just past the peak right now. So I, I'm hoping that as we start, you know, opening things up, uh, we don't see a resurgence of the infection, but it, it really does seem to be working. That's extremely promising. Andrew, we're about reaching the end of our time just curious if you have any closing thoughts or, or predictions for um, what's going to happen in the coming weeks and months with coronavirus, particularly at your hospital or potentially more globally within emergency departments across the country. I don't have any particularly deep thoughts that people smarter than me probably haven't already thought of. I can definitely uh, speak on some optimism. I think that, like I mentioned, shelter in place seems to be working. We are going to get through this, you know, we can and we will get through this and things should return to some sort of normal. Uh, I don't know exactly when, but I, I know it will, it will definitely happen. A couple of recommendations for people while they're staying at home. If you are healthy, continue to stay home, make sure that you're getting lots of sleep, make sure that you're, you know, staying healthy and getting some sort of physical exercise. When you do venture into public, wash your hands frequently, wear a mask. If you're sick, continue self-isolating. You can still be infectious even up to three days after your last on symptoms to really protect the people around you. And then I mentioned before, if you do start feeling short of breath or, or developing shortness of breath with exertion, make sure that you seek a medical attention. Andrew, uh, thanks so much for your time. Uh, I appreciate all of your answers and uh, really great to have you. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you.